Welcome back to Finest Hours. Thank you for joining us for another episode on the show where we share amazing true stories of human achievement and influence. I'm Braden Cromar, joined again by my co-host Hayden Hansen and executive producer Skylar Williams. What's up, everybody? Howdy ho. Kind of been a while. About two weeks. <laughs> I think the last one we did was probably like April. So yeah, it's it's kind of been a little while, but um weeks two months two something yeah two years no, i think i think the, i think the date was like may 1st i think that's what, what it said on the uh google oh, so we're, we're sticking to our new monthly cadence because i think that's just how yeah i think that's just what's going to happen is we'll be coming out every month but this podcast has officially hit its two-year anniversary it was two years ago that we did our first episode that's nuts it kind of feels longer than that to me, honestly. I feel like we started this two weeks ago. I have not been living in that world. A lot of life events have happened in the last couple of years for, for the three of us. It's been a busy two years. It has been. Yes, it has. So continuing onward today, bringing back, as always, another amazing story about William Slim, the leader of the Forgotten Army. Good old Billy. He actually and did go by Bill. We can look at home, Bill. So Hayden is our primary researcher here. So Hayden, give us an introduction to Bill Slim or William Slim. All right. Well, William Slim was born way back when in 1890. So he was born in Bristol, British lad. And he was the second son of a failed ironmonger. So his dad was involved in the iron business, but due to the failure of that business, the family could not afford to send William to college. His older brother, however, got sent to the University of Birmingham. During that time, William worked as a teacher for a primary school and as a clerk at a metal tube manufacturing plant. Absolutely living the dream. So in 1912, he decided that there was probably something more for him out there, and he joined a training corps through the University of Birmingham. This allowed him a near direct path into leadership due to the timing of World War I. And so many people really liked this guy. He was very casual, was not super proper, and it led to the belief that he had advanced through the ranks. But because of the timing of World War I and his training, he was immediately launched into leadership. So William Slim's introduction into war was immediately being injured. So he was badly wounded fighting alongside some Australians in the, a battle in a place called, I'm going to skier this, Gallipoli in Turkey. I know Turkey. The, I'm American. The Gallipoli campaign is one of the most well-known campaigns of the World War I era. Yep. And that's why I slaughtered it. So don't confuse it to Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Turkey. They sound was- similar, but it's not the same. It was a failed British invasion into the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, they got it, rocked. Him they specifically. Totally, they, totally, they totally got rocked. But they did pull him out and forced him to return to Great Britain. He was unfit for command or any service at that point. So he spent some time recovering. Within a year, he was back 
and returned to the Middle East, where he was injured a second time. Oh, man, what a start. So this guy was then evacuated to India, where he would end up joining the Indian Army there. And during the time period in between world wars, he remained in the military, but to supplement his modest salary, he ended up taking up a career in writing. And he wrote under the pen name Anthony Mills. And the fact that he took up writing in his interwar career pushed him to write much more after his career ended. We actually have a ton of information on this guy. There's a lot of information about the battles that he was involved in and some memoirs that he had written. Was he primarily writing memoirs? Like what type of works was he writing? So memoirs and then almost like journalistic of his view of his escapades. What do you call that? It's military advances. Very historical and is a, what do they call that? A primary source, which is really nice of these battles that he was involved in. I got to go put the baby down, but I'll be back in just a second. (laughs) Slim is best known for being a soldier's soldier during the campaigns he led in World War II. And we'll we'll get into those um, shortly. But he had a great respect for those he served and led. And uh, the respect was mutual. He um, he treated his men very well. So you've heard the story. As tensions heat up again in Europe, particularly in the more influential countries, and war breaks out, Slim enters the battlefield once again in East Africa. He was sent to Sudan in an attempt to liberate Ethiopia from the Italians and was injured for a third time in how do, we, how do we pronounce this country's name, Hayden? I think it's Eritrea. But Eritrea. That's a tough one. Um, it borders the Red know. Sea in Northern Africa. Yes, bordering, that is correct. Uh, bordering Ethiopia, which I don't know if technically either of these countries, I don't think Ethiopia existed technically during the time of World War II, but that region. As a country. Um, so do the injury. He was unfit for service and was once again sent to India. This time... They were expecting trouble to brew in Iraq, and he was preparing to re-enter war there. However, another leader fell ill, and Slim was promoted to take his place, acting as major general. And so it was a He's getting campaign. bounced over all over the place. He is like, everywhere. <laughs> he is everywhere. I mean, particularly in the in the Middle East and Africa, but it's like he's getting sent to lead new units all the time. Yep, that is correct, and he's not done yet. So now that I'm back, um, can we just recap what you guys went over? (laughs) (laughs) No, you can wait until this recording comes out, (laughs) and um, and then you can get caught up. Then perfect. (laughs) What is this? A business meeting? So funny. (laughs) So this uh, campaign was really brief, but he advanced up the Euphrates to invade Persia. And so that was a brief stint that he had back in the Middle East again. So bouncing around, leading units everywhere. Now, following all of that, he returns again to India to face a new advancing force in the Japanese. So a lot of his peers at this point had fought the people from the Middle East. Uh, They had fought the Persians. They had fought those in Iraq. They had fought uh, his initial war in Turkey, so Mesopotamia. And so they were kind of used to that idea of war. 
But now this is like the boss level. And now they go up to the boss level. And so like they have to then deal with jungle warfare and it's totally different from what they were used to. And so he gets there and he begins planning for an advance to recapture Burma from Japanese forces. Burma was originally colonized by the British, but had been invaded by the Japanese successfully. And so he was planning on recapturing it. But the Japanese were already planning major invasions to finish the war in Asia and claim all of the mainland of Asia. And they were close, too. They were not that far. Some people may say that's close. I say not that far. And so they had two priorities at this point. And so they wanted to take China and they wanted to take India, which, I mean, that is like a fifth of the population of the world today in just these <laughs> two places. So They very nearly took all of China. They had a massive population, but they were very underdeveloped compared to Japan. Today. Yeah. Well, and, and compared to today. But looking at Japan at the time, Japan was far more mechanized than either India or China. They just had lots of people. They had tons of people. Okay. So interestingly enough, they came up with some names, some good old code names. And it's not something fancy like Blitzkrieg or something like that. No, they called it Operation Yugo. I thought that was hilarious. As in, you I'm not going to go, you go. I so go to there. Me, it sounds like something similar of like an iPhone, a you go. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I don't find know, that man. so funny. So they called it Yugo and Ichigo, which I don't know what they were itching, but they were itching to go. And that was China. Yugo was such India. a dad joke. <laughs> Those were the two priorities. Another leader named General Irwin stationed in India as well, ended up taking control from Slim and immediately jumping in. And so he throws a quick left hook and gets clobbered. So his initial advance ended up in a total disaster. And Irwin ended up blaming Slim, Slim ended up blaming Irwin, and everybody agreed with Slim, so Irwin got the boot, and General Slim was then given control over a newly formed army called the 14th Army. This army would later be dubbed the Forgotten Army. It's when you know you've made it. When they finally (laughs) forgotten. People just trust you, and they're like, yeah, it's your fault. Look, we we know it was a big problem. But we totally side with you. Get that other guy out of here. Yeah, get him out of here. So the 14th was a bit of a melting pot. For some reason, the army and its successes were largely ignored by the press. General Slim went about training this new army in 1943. He noticed that about 70% of the soldiers were dealing with malaria, uh, which sucks. There was a preventative medication that the soldiers were supposed to be taking, uh, but due to its horrible flavor, many avoided the drug. Slim did not blame his doctors for the low utilization, but the regimental officers. Slim ended up demoting several officers from the units with high malaria rates. Once the other officers saw that he was serious, uh, the malaria rates dropped down to about 5%. How stupid is that? Like, oh, this medication takes gross. I'd rather just almost die. (laughs) Back to the story at hand. Slim goes about fixing up his new army. He fixed the malaria issue during a time where they weren't in active battle, which was a good thing because had they had 70% of their soldiers that were basically useless, they would have gotten their butts kicked. However, he had time to fix the malaria issue and give them additional training. 
some of his priorities in these trainings would be having them form defensive boxes. They were called admin boxes. They were designed that when they were surrounded by Japanese military, that they could hold their own and that they would be able to be reinforced by air. And so they could be resupplied and would be able to hold on until they were able to be saved, essentially. This uh, is also, the, uh, the same plan I use in Battlefield. Let's try battle, to battlefield, battlefield is amazing. <laughs> I love Battlefield. It's good. It's so awesome. So if you if you want to know what it was like for our guy Slim, go play some Battlefield. Today. <laughs> Send Skylar a DM so you guys can fight. And he'll show you how it's done. And you can be on my team. I'm not very good, but <laughs> it's amazing. It is. But anyway, sorry. I just wanted to get that in. <laughs> Don't forget your boxes and battlefield bros. <laughs> yep, exactly. The other priority was to get these people that have never bothered with jungle fighting and these new tactics, to get them used to the jungle. He increased night patrolling, offensive patrolling, night trainings as well, to encourage his soldiers to lose that fear of the jungle. And also lose the preconceived notion before they even showed up that the Japanese were the superior jungle fighters. He did not want them to hold, hang on to that belief. So all of this training is going on. And then in early 1944, the Japanese launched an offensive, which they were not ready for. But they were able to hold their own against a large offensive force. So the Japanese threw in 150,000 soldiers to invade India in this line. The lines were able to hold because of a defensive barrier between Burma and the advancing Japanese force called the Chin Hills, and they were actually able to hold them off, which was a big surprise for everybody. They were outnumbered significantly, 20,000 to 150,000, right? It wasn't close. That goes to show you the strategy of having the high ground is very, (laughs) very important. They were actually able to hold them off. And so they only needed to hold them off for a couple of months before then the monsoon season strikes and there's no way that they can end up winning. They're all stuck in the forest and a part of their plan was they needed the Japanese plan. They needed to run it a little bit thin and so they did not have plans to be resupplied from behind. Their plans were to come in there, smash them like a hammer and steal all their stuff. And that would be how they would resupply. Because they failed their initial offensive, they were unable to resupply at this point. And so they ended up stalled out in the jungle during monsoon season and were unable to continue their advance. Nice going, Japan. A classic German maneuver. It worked really well for the Germans a lot of the time, minus a couple. The reason that that ended up stalling out for the germans and they weren't i mean it worked through like all of france and then they went and tried it in russia and then the russians were just like let's just back up a bit and burn everything oh let's do it again <laughs> like <laughs> it just wrecked them and so it would have been interesting to see what would have happened and what the plan would have been like had they known that they didn't have the right supplies if they would have just backed up and burned and burned and said like yeah you can keep trying to fight us but you're not resupplying yeah would have been interesting but that's not what happened. We won't get carried away. Well, we were. We almost were. But oh, I mean, I was getting carried away. We, 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 we were getting we there. We almost <laughs> jumped in there. But <laughs> it totally took us on a different tangent. Yeah, I mean, the, the Japanese were winning territory at an astonishing rate. They're taking over territories extremely fast. 
But they're also taking over relatively underdeveloped areas that paled in comparison to the Japanese. Like the Japanese were far more mechanized than most of Asia. They had a lot of AI and robots. So, I mean, the fact that they weren't very efficient at supplying their frontline troops is rookie mistake. This is probably one of their first engagements with the British and the Indian armies who were, you know, Western philosophy on warfare. After the failed Japanese assault, the Japanese are sent back retreating into the jungle. Along the way, there are Japanese soldiers who are wounded. And under the Bushido Code, which we'll talk about, you know, these wounded soldiers were committed suicide or were killed by their fellow, um, their fellow soldiers. The Bushido philosophy, we kind of covered this in our episode on Louis Zamperini, but it was the idea that it is the most honorable thing that one could do was die in battle. And the most cowardly thing one could do was be taken prisoner. And this was so heavily ingrained in the Japanese mindset that um, like, PO, like Japanese POW counts were so incredibly low because they would just kill themselves before they would allow themselves to be captured. This philosophy is also known as the exact opposite of the French philosophy, <laughs> which is wave the white flag as soon as they point anything sharp towards you. <laughs> we, we have to be nice to the French. Historically, France has the most successful military in world history based off because they were always on our side <laughs> just, <kidding. laughs> just that one two two times three times maybe more <laughs> maybe more <laughs> so you know, any, anyway back to the serious matter bushido this was extremely problematic for all the belligerents fighting against japan because they just would not stop fighting and the casualties in the pacific theater were insane because of this insanely high casualty rates so but this defeat was the largest setback the japanese had seen this far into the war it's their largest setback and it was not really publicized at all and so like nobody in europe knows that this is happening really everyone is kind of focused on the european theater the press is focused on the European theater because it's closest to home. Which is true. But for the American sake as well, which they also went and focused on the European theater as well, but they also had no idea. And the Japanese were just steamrolling everybody. Yeah, and this was... But, I mean, the, the Americans are reporting on their campaign, not the British campaign. Also true. They were getting pounded relentlessly and not seeing big wins like everybody that was fighting yeah. against them. And so for well, a morale sake, would you not report on that? 1945, the U.S. is making ground in the islands in the East Pacific and getting closer and closer to Japan. So what uh, is being reported on the American side is Battle of Iwo Jima, Okinawa. Those are the battles that are getting the, the attention. Comparable in scale to this because it did stop their advance completely and turn it in the other direction. Whereas this was the first time that had happened on the mainland side yeah. of things. Early 1944. So there is a lot going on. Going right on. There is a lot right now. Like uh, the Normandy invasion has happened and people are, and the allies are sweeping through Europe. 
and the Eastern campaign kind of got forgotten a little bit. No wonder they're the forgotten army. Yeah. <laughs> that the person that wrote the it on the Wikipedia army. page was an absolute homer for the Eastern side of things. <laughs> 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 and I took it from them. <laughs> nice. Early 1945, following the monsoon season, Slim's army was ready to advance. Uh, they would have preferred a naval assault, but due to the demands of the war in Europe, there were no craft available for the army. Um, this meant that they had to make a more difficult land assault. Everyone's trying to take out the German forces, and then they're going to shift their focus on Japan, oh, except the Americans who are like, no, we're going to take on Japan. Piece of cake. Japan's a little closer, I think. Slim's trust with his officers and soldiers was paramount because as they began their advance to Burma in 1945, they did not need to wait on his decisions. He allowed them to have the final say. This allowed for a quicker advance where other generals may have stalled. Again, some great leadership from Slim, you know, allowing his officers and his soldiers to make decisions. Autonomy that was sometimes uh, what, non-existent in this yeah, situation, yeah. right? And still, I mean, sometimes it still isn't, right? Like, you have to get to a certain point where if you're a leader to trust the individuals underneath you to make decisions like that. Whether business or otherwise. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Following their advance into some of the worst combat terrain on the planet in this jungle fighting, the estimates for the opposing forces remained around 100,000 to General Slim's 20,000. He ended up pursuing that 100,000 and pursuing the battle against them due to his belief that their superior logistics and supply lines would win them the battle. They eventually pushed them out of the jungle and across the plains of Burma and were preparing to take two major cities, Melkatilla and Mandalay, and they ended up receiving reinforcements finally from both air and sea and were able to finally push them out of Burma. It was interesting here because he did finally get the help that originally, when you look at the numbers, that started out as 150,000 versus, you know, 20,000. You're probably going to need some help if you're going to want to win that battle. But they ended up winning and winning some more and pushing them all the way back to the point where they were in these areas where they could receive those reinforcements and then finish finish pushing them out. And it's getting later into the war too, right? So Germany is falling. Resources, resources finally become available and it's just like, oh. And they're like, okay, we'll pay attention to Burma to put now. the hammer down. Boom. Get them so, out. And Burma I mean, was a British territory thing. or a colony. I don't know if we mentioned that, but the Brits fought very valiantly and sacrificed a lot in the Burma campaign. And some of the craziest stuff happened in Burma. They had, so when you're fighting these... They went from jungle fighting to pushing them across these plains to getting to now city and urban areas. And that same Bushido style existed in the urban areas. And so like the streets were just like nuts. Like you picture that same type of environment now in a city and it just is nasty. Well said. <laughs> nasty. Never heard something so nasty. <laughs> the final recap. What did this guy do? Well, he became very popular among the Australians, and so he moved to Australia to become their governor general. <laughs> Dude, like, what is That's this guy? He's, he's a Brit, but he also spends a lot of time in India. Well, I guess it was British colony at that point. And now he's a politician for Australia? Also British colony at one point. <laughs> like, 
he just jumped around and definitely oh, travels the colonies on travel he got <laughs> enough reward points from his military experience that britain was just like yeah go wherever you want anywhere in the colonies it's like a prize it was australia so he chose australia and so he ended up being like a governor general there for like six or six to eight years i don't remember how long it was but that was like in the 50s or 60s and he ended up passing away at the age of 79 in 1970 after a very illustrious and successful career doing whatever he wanted he looks like (laughs) how you would expect a british explorer to look like he looks like that guy so you already know what this guy looks like without even seeing his photo had he been born a mere Hundred years earlier, he would have been an explorer rather than a conqueror of bad people. Just... Conqueror of lands, not people. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. He was only go ever going after the land. He never really went after the people. That sounds like the excuse that Brits have been telling themselves for the last three hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the land, guys. Get off it, and then we won't have any problems. He wears his pants up to his chest and his pockets are huge and they can fit his whole arm all the way down to his elbow in his pockets. <laughs> what do you, what did no, they need to keep in there? That's my favorite look. <laughs> are they keeping like sawed off shotguns in their pockets? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what it looks like. Like, what was the point? <laughs> I would love to see somebody with those pockets today and then they like dig down in there for their iPhone. <laughs> like, that concludes the episode on Billy Boy. Count General Billy Slim. well hope you guys enjoyed our episode give us a follow on instagram finest hours podcast if you feel like we should talk about someone shoot us an email at finest hours pod at gmail.com and then don't forget to subscribe and rate us feel free to to share us with friends and, and rate us and subscribe us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Well, tally ho. 